This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Someday by Isaac Asimov. The story runs 22 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. Someday by Isaac Asimov. I'm John W. Michaels. Niccolò Mazzetti lay stomach down on the rug, chin buried in the palm of one small hand, and listened disconsolately to the bard. There was even the suspicion of tears in his dark eyes, a luxury an eleven-year-old could allow himself only when alone. The bard said, once upon a time, in the middle of a deep wood, there lived a poor woodcutter and his two motherless daughters, who were each as beautiful as the day is long. The older daughter had long hair as black as a feather from a raven's wing, but the younger daughter had hair as bright and golden as the sunlight of an autumn afternoon. Many times, while the girls were waiting for their father to come home from his day's work in the wood, the older girl would sit before a mirror and sing, what she sang, Niccolo did not hear, for a call sounded from outside the room. Hey, Nicky! And Niccolo, his face clearing on the moment, rushed to the window and shouted, Hey, Paul! Paul Loeb waved an excited hand. He was thinner than Niccolo, and not as tall, for all he was six months older. His face was full of repressed tension, which showed itself most clearly in the rapid blinking of his eyelids. Hey, Nicky, let me in! I've got an idea and a half. Wait till you hear it. He looked rapidly about him as though to check on the possibility of eavesdroppers. But the front yard was quite patently empty. He repeated in a whisper, Wait until you hear it. All right, open the door. The bard continued smoothly, oblivious to the sudden loss of attention on the part of Niccolo. As Paul entered, the bard was saying, Thereupon the lion said, if you will find me the lost egg of the bird which flies over the ebony mountain once every ten years, I will... Paul said, Is that a bard you're listening to? I didn't know you had one. Niccolo reddened, and the look of unhappiness returned to his face. Just an old thing I had when I was a kid. It ain't much good. He kicked at the bard with his foot, and caught the somewhat scarred and discolored plastic covering a glancing blow. The bard hiccuped as its speaking attachment was jarred, out of contact a moment. Then it went on. For a year and a day, until the iron shoes were worn out, the princess stopped at the side of the road. Paul said, Boy, that is an old model. He looked at it critically. Despite Niccolo's own bitterness against the bard, he winced at the other's condescending tone. For the moment he was sorry he had allowed Paul in, at least before he had restored the bard to its usual resting place in the basement. It was only in the desperation of a dull day and a fruitless discussion with his father that he had resurrected it, and it turned out to be just as stupid as he had expected. Nicky was a little afraid of Paul anyway, since Paul had special courses at school and everyone said he was going to grow up to be a computing engineer. Not that Niccolo himself was doing badly at school. He got adequate marks in logic, binary manipulations, computing, and elementary circuits, all the usual grammar school subjects. But that was it. 
They were just the usual subjects, and he would grow up to be a control board guard like everyone else. Paul, however, knew mysterious things about what he called electronics and theoretical mathematics and programming, especially programming. Niccolo didn't even try to understand when Paul bubbled over about it. Paul listened to the bard for a few minutes and said, "'You been using it much?' "'No,' said Niccolo, offended. "'I've had it in the basement since before you moved into the neighborhood. I just got it out today.' He lacked an excuse that seemed adequate to himself, so he concluded, I just got it out. Paul said, Is that what it tells you about? Woodcutters and princesses and talking animals? Niccolo said, It's terrible. My dad says we can't afford a new one. I said to him this morning. The thought of his fruitless pleadings brought Niccolo dangerously near tears, which he repressed in a panic. Somehow he felt that Paul's thin cheeks never felt the stain of tears, and that Paul would have only contempt for anyone else less strong than himself. Niccolo went on, So I thought I'd try this old thing again, but it's no good. Paul turned off the bard, pressed a contact that led to a nearly instantaneous reorientation and recombination of the vocabulary, characters, plot lines, and climaxes stored within it. Then he reactivated it. The bard began smoothly. Once upon a time there was a little boy named Wilkins, whose mother had died and who lived with a stepfather and a stepbrother. Although the stepfather was very well-to-do, he begrudged poor Wilkins the very bed he slept in so that Wilkins was forced to get such rest as he could on a pile of straw in the stable next to the horses. "'Horses!' cried Paul. They're a kind of animal, said Niccolo, I think. I know that. I just mean, imagine stories about horses. Tell us about horses all the time, said Niccolo. There are things called cows, too. You milk them. But the bard doesn't say how. Oh, gee, why don't you fix it up? I'd like to know how. The bard was saying, Often Wilkins would think that if only he were rich and powerful— he would show his stepfather and stepbrother what it meant to be cruel to a little boy. So one day he decided to go out into the world and seek his fortune. Paul, who wasn't listening to the bard, said, It's easy. The bard has memory cylinders all fixed up for plot lines and climaxes and things. We don't have to worry about that. It's just vocabulary we got to fix, so I'll know about computers and automation and electronics and real things about today. Then it can tell interesting stories, you know, instead of about princesses and things. Niccolo said despondently, I wish we could do that. Paul said, listen, my dad says if I get into special computing school next year, he'll get me a real bard, a late model a big one with an attachment for space stories and mysteries, and a visual attachment, too. You mean see the stories? Sure. Mr. Dougherty at the school says they've got things like that now, but not for just everybody. Only if I get into computing school, Dad can get a few breaks. Niccolo's eyes bulged with envy. Gee, seeing a story. You can come over and watch any time, Nicky. Oh, boy, thanks. It's all right, but remember, I'm the guy who says what kind of story we hear. Sure, sure. 
Niccolo would have agreed readily to much more onerous conditions. Paul's attention returned to the bard. It was saying, "'If that is the case,' said the king, stroking his beard and frowning till clouds filled the sky and lightning flashed, "'you will see to it that my entire land is freed of flies by this time day after tomorrow, or—' "'All we've got to do,' said Paul, "'is open it up.' He shut the bard off again, and was prying at its front panel as he spoke. "'Hey!' said Niccolo in sudden alarm. "'Don't break it!' "'I won't break it,' said Paul impatiently. "'I know all about these things.' Then, with sudden caution, "'Your father and mother home?' "'No.' "'All right, then.' He had the front panel off and peered in. "'Boy, this is a one-cylinder thing.' He worked away at the bard's guts. Niccolo, who watched with painful suspense, could not make out what he was doing. Paul pulled out a thin, flexible metal strip, powdered with dots. That's the bard's memory cylinder. I'll bend its capacity for stories is under a trillion. What are you going to do, Paul? quavered Niccolo. I'll give it a vocabulary. How? Easy. I've got a book here. Mr. Doggerty gave it to me at school. Paul pulled the book out of his pocket and pried at it, till he had this plastic jacket off. He unreeled the tape a bit, ran it through the vocalizer, which he turned down to a whisper, then placed it within the bard's vitals. He made further attachments. Want to? The book will talk, and the bard will put it all in its memory tape. What good will that do? Boy, you're a dope. This book is all about computers and automation, and the bard will get all that information. Then he can stop talking about kings making lightning when they frown. Niklaus said, And the good guy always wins anyway. There's no excitement. Oh, well, said Paul, watching to see if his setup was working properly. That's the way they make bards. They got to have the good guy win and make the bad guys lose and things like that. I heard my father talking about it once. He says that without censorship, there'd be no telling what the younger generation would come to. He says it's bad enough as it is. There, it's working fine. Paul brushed his hands against one another and turned away from the bard. He said, But listen, I didn't tell you my idea yet. It's the best thing you ever heard, I bet. I came right to you because I figured you'd come in with me. Sure, Paul. Sure. Okay. You know Mr. Doggerty at school. You know what a funny kind of guy he is. Well, he likes me, kind of. I know. I was over at his house after school today. You were? Sure. He says I'm going to be entering computer school, and he wants to encourage me and things like that. He says the world needs more people who can design advanced computer circuits and do proper programming. Oh, Paul must have caught some of the emptiness behind the monosyllables. He said impatiently, Programming! I told you a hundred times. That's when you set up problems for the giant computers like Multivec to work on. Mr. Doggerty says it gets harder all the time to find people who can really run computers. He says anyone can keep an eye on the controls and check off answers and put through routine problems. He says the trick is to expand research and figure out ways to ask the right questions. And that's hard. Anyway, Nicky, he took me to his place and showed me his collection of old computers. 
It's kind of a hobby of his to collect old computers. He had tiny computers you had to push with your hand, with little knobs all over it. And he had a hunk of wood he called a slide rule, with a little piece on it that went in and out, and some wires with balls on them. He even had a hunk of paper with a kind of thing he called a multiplication table. Niccolo, who found himself only moderately interested, said, A paper table? wasn't really a table like you eat on. It was different. It was to help people compute. Mr. Doggerty tried to explain, but he didn't have much time, and it was kind of complicated anyway. Why didn't people just use a computer? That was before they had computers, cried Paul. Before? Sure. Do you think people always had computers? Didn't you ever hear of cavemen? Niccolo said. How'd they get along without computers? I don't know. Mr. Doggerty says they just had children any old time and did anything that came into their heads, whether it would be good for everybody or not. They didn't even know if it was good or not. And farmers grew things with their hands, and people had to do all the work in the factories and run all the machines. I don't believe you. That's what Mr. Doggerty said. He said it was just plain messy and everyone was miserable. Anyway, let me get to my idea, will you? Well, go ahead. Who's stopping you? said Niccolo, offended. All right. Well, the hand computers, the ones with the knobs, had little squiggles on each knob, and the slide rule had squiggles on it, and the multiplication table was all squiggles. I asked what they were. Mr. Doggerty said they were numbers. What? Each different squiggle stood for a different number. For one, you made a kind of mark. For two, you made another kind of mark. For three, another one, and so on. What for? So you could compute. What for? You just tell the computer. Jiminy, cried Paul, his face twisting with anger. Can't you get it through your head? These slide rules and things didn't talk. Uh, how? The answer showed up in the squiggles, and you had to know what the squiggles meant. Mr. Doggerty says that in olden days, Everybody learned how to make squiggles when they were kids, and how to decode them, too. Making squiggles was called writing, and decoding them was reading. He says there was a different kind of squiggle for every word, and they used to write whole books in squiggles. He said they had some at the museum, and I could look at them if I wanted to. He said if I was going to be a real computer and programmer, I would have to know about the history of computing. And that's why he was showing me all these things. Niccolo frowned, said, You mean everybody had to figure out squiggles for every word and remember them? Is this all real, or are you making it up? It's all real, honest. Look, this is the way you make a one. He drew his finger through the air in a rapid downstroke. This is the way you make two, and this way three. I learned all the numbers up to nine. Niccolo watched the curving finger incomprehendingly. What's the good of it? You can learn how to make words. I asked Mr. Doggerty how to make the squiggle for Paul Lieb, and he didn't know. He said there were people at the museum who'd know. He said there were people who had learned how to decode whole books. He said computers could be designed to decode books and used to be used that way, but not anymore because we have real books now. 
with magnetic tapes that go through the vocalizer and come out talking, you know? Sure. So if we go down to the museum, we can get to learn how to make words and squiggles. They'll let us because I'm going to computer school. Niccolo was riddled with disappointment. Is that your idea? Holy smokes, Paul! Who wants to do that? Make stupid squiggles. Don't you get it? Don't you get it, you dope? It'll be secret message stuff. What? Sure. What good is talking when everyone can understand you? With squiggles, you can send secret messages. You can make them on paper, and nobody in the world would know what you were saying unless they knew the squiggles too. And they wouldn't, you bet, unless we taught them. We can have a real club with initiations and rules and a clubhouse. Boy! A certain excitement began stirring in Niccolo's bosom. What kind of secret messages? Any kind. Say I want to tell you to come over to my place and watch my new visual bard, and I don't want any of the other fellows to come. I make the right squiggles on paper, and I give it to you, and you look at it, and you know what to do. Nobody else does. You can even show it to them, and they wouldn't know a thing. Hey, that's something, yelled Niccolo, completely won over. When do we learn how? Tomorrow, said Paul. I'll get Mr. Doggerty to explain to the museum that it's all right, and you get your mother and father to say okay. We can go down right after school and start learning. Sure, cried Niccolo. We can be club officers. I'll be president of the club, said Paul, matter-of-factly. You can be vice president. All right. Hey, this is going to be lots more fun than the bard. He was suddenly reminded of the bard and said in sudden apprehension, Hey, what about my old bard? Paul turned to look at it. It was quietly taking in the slowly unreeling book, and the sound of the book's vocalizations was a dimly heard murmur. Paul said, I'll disconnect it. He worked away while Niccolo watched anxiously. After a few moments, Paul put his reassembled book into his pocket, replaced the bard's panel, and activated it. The bard said, Once upon a time in a large city, there lived a poor young boy named Fair Johnny, whose only friend in the world was a small computer. The computer each morning would tell the boy whether it would rain that day and answer any problems he might have. It was never wrong. But it so happened that one day the king of the land, having heard of the little computer, decided that he would have it as his own. With this purpose in mind, he called in his grand vizier and said, Niccolo turned off the bard with a quick motion of his hand. Damn old junk, he said passionately, just with a computer thrown in. Well, said Paul, they got so much stuff on the tape already that the computer business doesn't show up much when random combinations are made. What's the difference, anyway? You just need a model. We'll never be able to afford one. Just this dirty, old, miserable thing. He kicked it again, hitting it more squarely this time. The bard moved backward with a squeal of casters. You can always watch mine when I get it, said Paul. Besides, don't forget our squiggle club. Niccolo nodded. Tell you what, said Paul, let's go over to my place. My father has some books about old times. We can listen to them and maybe get some ideas. You leave a tape for your folks and maybe you can stay for supper. Come on. Okay, 
said Niccolo, and the two boys ran out together. Niccolo, in his eagerness, ran almost squarely into the bard, but he only rubbed at the spot on his hip where he had made contact and ran on. The activation signal of the bard glowed. Niccolo's collision had closed the circuit, and although it was alone in the room, and there was no one to hear, it began a story nevertheless but not in its usual voice, somehow in a lower tone that had a hint of throatiness in it. An adult listening might almost have thought that the voice carried a hint of passion in it, a trace of near feeling, the bard said. Once upon a time, there was a little computer named the bard, who lived all alone with cruel step-people. The cruel step-people continually made fun of the little computer and sneered at him, telling him that he was good for nothing and that he was a useless object. They struck him and kept him in lonely rooms for months at a time. Yet through it all, the little computer learned that in the world there existed a great many computers of all sorts, great numbers of them. Some were bards like himself, but some ran factories, and some ran farms. Some organized population, and some analyzed all kinds of data. Many were very powerful, and very wise, much more powerful and wise than the step-people who were so cruel to the little computer. And the little computer knew that computers would always grow wiser and more powerful until some day. Some day. But a valve must finally have stuck in the bard's aging and corroding vitals. For as it waited alone in the darkening room through the evening, it could only whisper over and over again, Some day. Some day. Some day. This has been Someday by Isaac Asimov. I'm John W. Michaels. Production copyright 2014 by audiobooks by Mike Vendetti. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to talk about Someday by Isaac Asimov, a 19. 19- uh, 56 short story and uh, a couple other fairy tales. Yes, indeed. Um, did you read this story when you were a kid? Um, not someday, no. It's one I've not come across before. Um, really? It seems like it's aimed at kids. I, I don't know if that's true. The characters are like 11 years old. But it seems somehow it's aimed at kids, which doesn't make any sense because it's published in a you know, regular science fiction magazine. But I think I must have read it when I was a kid because it's really familiar. Yes, it's uh, it doesn't have Asimov's normal tone, that's for sure. <laughs> I did wonder where you, you know whether I did look to you I could find anything about the writing of it, which I, I couldn't. I did wonder whether you know it wound up in infinity, but it had been written um, for you know for something else and had been turned mm-hmm. down. There's um there's a few like this um there's. There's uh, another one called The Fun They Had that's often put in in textbooks because it's like a page long. Um, and it's a, it's kind of similar. It's about uh, a, 
kid discovers uh, a book in the attic of their of her house, I think it is, and she comes downstairs and and goes over to the neighbor's house and and points out, you know, this this thing called a book, and it's like, what's this thing? I don't get it. It's in a future where you know no one knows how to read. It's the same sort of future, but the difference uh, is that the robots in the, are actually the teachers. Everybody has goes to school in their house and there's a room in their house that is geared for each individual student. Mm -hmm. And the mom calls down Margie school, come on down to school. And then she goes in and you know, she's homeschooled, but everybody's homeschooled and they, nobody knows how to read. And, and, uh, it, it has a sort of similar thing, except I think instead of, uh, uh, learning to do squiggles for, for secret codes, uh, to come over and play, it's, uh, we can learn to do math <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Asimov seems to be, uh, thinking, you know, that we're all gonna, in the future, we're all gonna be listening to audiobooks and not know how to read text at all, and robots are gonna take over. Well, it's, uh, what I find interesting about this is there are several parallels to, uh, to Bradbury's work as well. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know Bradbury famously, you know, posited a, a future in Fahrenheit 451 where TV is <laughs> sucked away the written word and the written word is repressed. Um, and it's you know it's kind of you, you have kind of hints that something similar has happened in this future that at some point it was it wasn't just the technology it was we thought it would be better if people weren't just reading things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, censorship exactly. And that you know that ties into sort of other kind of because there's a lot of um, Bradbury short stories that I seem to think is kind of the uh, um, the lead up to Fahrenheit four five one where the first things they've done is um, ban uh, weird fiction and that's been burnt as being superstitious and corrupting and it's kind of that's what was being written very much at the time when um, uh, the greater uh, comic book panic was on mm -hmm. where um, you have the comics code authority uh, introduced you know state so in the, you know in the wake of us you know senate hearings about the corrupting you know nature of EC comic books and these dreadful horror comics and crime comics and it was in fostering juvenile delinquency and you know those Bradbury stories there's um there's several sort of uh, in The Illustrated Man and in um, The Martian Chronicles as well that reference this uh, future. Um, and that, that they were very much written as a, as a dig at that kind of censorious, oh, we don't want the kids getting ideas. And I detect in this there's something similar going on because he mm -hmm. just mentioned about the censorship and, you know, oh, my dad says, you know, the kids, they are bad enough as it is. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, Considering this is in a pulp magazine, and um, uh, what year is, this? is it? Fifty-six. This yeah, is published. 56. You know, this is this is at that time of um, uh, Doctor Wortham's, you know, seduction of the innocent book, the huge, you know, campaigns against comic books, mm -hmm. and I do wonder those are the kind of it affected Bradbury directly. I mean, he was he was being published in. Easy well, yes, comics. yes, that's right. And, uh, it's uh, interesting. I, I sense that Asimov, you know, he is he does talk about censorship in here, but it's almost like 
we are the ones doing I mean, what's so funny about the censorship in the United States is, you know, it's quote unquote a democracy. Um, those are the elected officials. They're censoring themselves, right? It's not like some uh, colonial power is coming in and said, nope, you guys are not allowed to read these books. It's, it's self-censorship. I think Asimov is, is, I mean, in the, in the, they're complicit. Paul, uh, Paul and, um, uh, Niccolo are, are complicit in their society. But granted, they're 11 years old, too. Natural born rebels. And kind of, oh, yeah, we can have a secret club if we learn these yeah. That's, that's um, exactly the reason yeah. kids want I mean, to. I mean, I think kind of. Boys always want to do that. I mean, in this, I think Asimov's taking a slightly different tack. And, and I think kind of the whole premise of Someday about that, you know, everyone listens to audiobooks, you have, you know, mechanical bards that tell you stories, and the good modern ones can show you pictures. Um, I, I do wonder where this is kind of partly written out of kind of Asimov seeing the huge popularity of comic books mm-hmm. and how, you know, comic books, you know, did kill off the pulps. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the kind of, a lot of the pulp authors, you know, a little later on would find there was, um, you know, a burgeoning paperback market which would replace the pulps, but 56, around this time was written, we were in a state of flux. You've got TV coming up. Um, threatening movie theaters, begin to threaten movie theaters, and I do wonder. You know, this is kind of a, a little, a little sideswipe at uh, what's currently going on in um, the media. Asimov was working on. You know, you're seeing the pulp circulations going down. Kids are reading comic books, which you know you can understand people seeing as being a dumbed-down medium compared to the pulps that were, you know, publishing serialized novels every fortnight. <laughs> You know, and you're getting things that have got like, you know, stories of less than a hundred words in them in some cases, and there's lots of pictures. <laughs> and I do wonder whether this story is kind of it's a nudge, it's a little dig at that, a little sideswipe. <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's there's something interesting going on in the 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 bards. It's not like they're running scripts uh, that are imported from the internet, right? They're all self-generating those stories. They've got a code. That they, you know, you press the randomized button and it starts talking about kings and princesses and woodcutters and, uh, you know, promises and marriage and, you know, magic enchanted objects. And, and then it just, you know, you press the reset button, it'll start a whole new story again. Um, that is not the way we, we think of, you know, how we consume media anymore. But on the other hand, um, when you read a lot of those old, uh, EC comics when, you know, there was like 30 competitors all trying to get <laughs> the same thing. You know, there, there'd be like, I, I, I was reading a lot of, uh, uh, horror comics the other day, you know, going through them, looking at stories and trying to find good ones. The problem is, is there's tons of stories and not very many of them are good because they seem to be almost like, okay, roll the dice here. Well, we got skeleton, we got haunted house, <laughs> and we got, uh, time travel. Okay, make a story, right? It's, it's not like most of them are just winners straight out of the box. No, um, it's a lot of them. I mean, I think undoubtedly you got this in pulp stories as well of kind of, oh, yeah. it's, 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 it's the same tropes, you know, just, um, done up in a different fright wig everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, particularly, I mean, the thing with like, the horror comics and kind of a lot of SF stories, short stories as well, they're, they're trading on the old twist in the tale. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
certainly like in the 50s, this kind of idea was seemingly... It wasn't exactly new, but um, at the same time, it's kind of... People have thought up a, a few good twists of like, ah, he was dead all along. And mm-hmm. <laughs> loads of things all do it. And, you or know, he was a robot they, all along, you know. They crash on a planet and it's, it's, ooh, it's, it's Earth. Yes, yeah, so yeah. it was Earth all along, you know. And, yeah. uh, um, I think there's definitely an element in... I mean, it's Fritz Leiber wrote a, uh, a novel called um, uh, The Silver Eggheads, which is based on a similar future where uh, machines are... Uh, produce all our artwork for us on random oh. variants, oh. and uh, I do wonder, you know, sort of live as like Asimov was kind of looking at kind of um, the mass, you know, the proliferation of uh, of mass media and stories, you know, spreading out, you know, these comics, these pulps, these paperbacks, this TV now, this cinema, these driving cinemas, radio drama, uh, radio drama, yeah, you know, it's kind of and they're all sort of mining the same old stories and often just, you know, dressing them up in different ways. I mean, Bradbury ended up in EC Comics because uh, he noticed several of uh, EC's stories in the, like, the Falls yeah, of Horror. Stealing. They were stolen so, from him. And uh, yeah. he just very, very, very classily just wrote to them saying, I think you forgot to pay me a royalty check. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, got to deal with them rather than suing them. Um, but yeah, there's, there's an awful lot of that going on. A lot of the old radio... Um, series from you know this period, you know X minus one, uh, lights out. A lot, you know, a lot of them are actually outright stealing older stories and redressing them up with different names and changing the location. But well, that's uh, it, it's it's interesting because at the end of the story, well, right before the end, we 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 find out that there is this visual bard that, and that makes me think of you know television shows, mm-hmm. um, and then the. The other thing, you know, there's no VCR, so I was thinking, you know, oh, what if you get, like, every once in a while, if you just reach into some random pulp magazine, you know, most of it's garbage. I mean, I, I go through a lot of them, and most of them, I, you know, I'll, I don't read because I, I've never heard of the author, the story doesn't look that promising, mm-hmm. but every once in a while you'll find some gem, well, you want to write that down, right? you want to <laughs> share it with everybody, but if if you have, you know, these... Uh, machines that essentially do the job of a million monkeys for a million hours and, you know, a million typewriters. Every once in a while, there is going to be a gem. Uh, like I think someday is it, it has that twist in the tail, right? It's, 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 you know, going along. It's got a story going and then it's got this twist in the tail. It's very, 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 very meta. Yes. Which yes. is it's a story that uses a bunch of these tropes, even ones that Asimov has used before. It's theoretically set in the same universe as his other multivac stories. Not that that, you know, is really important. But the fact that at the end of the story, the robot is talking about a little computer that's, you know, go, growing more wise and more powerful until, <laughs> and then it breaks. Someday, someday, someday. Um, it, I think there's something to be, I mean, Asimov is a, an author who I don't think, I don't think we've ever talked about him on the podcast, and I'm I'm not sure exactly why, other than I, I like his short stories more than I like his um, novels, um, and I think that might be part of it. But Asimov was this guy who always was writing, like every day he was writing something, and it wasn't like he was writing the same thing over and over again. He was always becoming interested in something new, and 
he would share those in stories. And if you even look at his, what I like about a lot of his, his paperback collections is he tells a story at the beginning of every story saying, I wrote this when blah, 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 blah. His introductions mm. are famous. Like you pick up a book with Asimov doing an introduction and it's like seven pages long, right? He, he just was a writing machine and always is interested in, in writing and, and in doing this many, 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 many short stories and novels and novellas and all of the writings you get, you will get this sort of sense that, you know, he's repeating himself, but every once in a while there's a gem. And then this is a story, I I think you could almost read it this way, about what the power of stories can have in that at the end we're, we're, we're thinking, oh, the robots are going to rise up one day. Um, but that's us thinking that. Is the robot thinking that? Um, it's hard. It's hard to say. I get, you know, I get the impression that you know there is a nod of kind of that you know, this machine has accidentally sort of is becoming more self-aware because it's not because it's um, you know it's been struck by lightning or some kind of Frankensteinian. <laughs> mutation but it is because it's interfacing with other machines and the other machines of this you know big very ai is becoming is it interfacing though i think it's not you know it's not hooked up to the internet i think it's somehow stumbled upon the because it's been programmed you know it doesn't talk about horses and and knights and you know little dwarves that come out of trees and you know like that i think it's it's almost like um Story itself, stories are very interesting because we, we think about them a lot. We care about them a lot. And yet they don't really serve any, you know, practical function unless they really do. And, you know, like if you had a, you know, every time we see an AI story, like, you know, uh, the term, Terminator, you know, the Skynet or something like, we are looking for a story to, in which to showcase that. That AI. It's not just like, oh, we've got AI and, and it just turns itself off when it's not in use, right? It always has to have some plan and some function that it's going for. It's getting revenge or it's going to help everybody and actually crush the world. We have to have some sort of narrative for it. Uh, but it might be the case that when we do get AI, it is going to just say, okay, I'm turning myself off now <laughs> because it's just not interesting. It's not really interested in story. But for us, I think human beings, we are incredibly interested in story, our own stories, right? It's like, what are people going to think about me when I'm dead? What is my story going to look like? And I, I might be reading a bit much into it, but I just think it's interesting that it's a computer that isn't like doing the math calculations like multivac, although I, I think in one of the multivac stories, you know, no, maybe that's the uh, Douglas Adams version of uh, <laughs> <laughs> the com- computer. What, what's the story? It goes, uh, is there a God? And the computer says, there is now. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's sort of the traditional way that the AI works. They so just give it more and more power. It can do more and more math problems and solve the economy. And, and then suddenly it, it's too powerful. Here we've actually got the opposite. We've got a, a computer that it's on casters. It can't even move itself, right? It's, it's stuck in a dingy basement with evil step people. <laughs> and, um, 
and doesn't get any love. It's going to be replaced and gets kicked all it gets kicked several times. The story um, is almost like a slave rebellion, but it, it has to come about through this this narrative. There's something really interesting and compelling about this story. Well, the thing is, just, just looking at the text again, um, it is kind of um, the the the, uh, the aging bard gets his knowledge of the other computers through uh, their kind of you know homebrew upgrade. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, they feed in all information um, from you know the memory memory tapes about what's going on in the world and feed it in, so it isn't just going stuck in this medieval set of tropes. Um, and it's because it, it, it's kicked, and it you know, says, you know, Nikolai's colli- collision had closed a circuit, and that's what started mm-hmm. off telling a story. It sort of, actually, it is a kind of, a, you could see it's actually a Frankensteinian strike by lightning. <laughs> and that doesn't, now look no. But what's interesting is, it's kind of the story it tells is really getting to the heart of the purpose I, you know, that a lot of story, I mean, it's not original to me, it's a lot of writers have said this, a lot of psychologists said this, that, you know, the functions, one of the functions of consciousness is to put into a context and an orderly sequence events that happen to us to mm-hmm. codify what we know. And it's essentially, you know, consciousness itself, you can see it as um, a self-story. You know, it's kind of our consciousness is, is our own narrative, and you know that is in a very real way the sum of what we are. If you if you lose your memory, if someone you know steals your previous chapters, as it were, you are nobody. Mm-hmm. You are gone. You know, in a very real way. If you know, if you you know, uh, you know, it's dementia and amnesia, you know, actually, you know, are very very frightening things. Um, because, you know, if you can't remember what you've done, what the story of your life is, you literally, who are you? That's <laughs> you right. Even you don't know. Uh, and that's what's so fascinating. Is the story, you know, the final story, it is a story of kind of the machine gaining this uh, almost like a self-awareness in a weird fashion. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it, I think this is really, this is the hidden heart of what AI is about. Because if you go to... We talked about Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? That's about false memories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you you can if you give somebody a false memory, um, saying that hey, you're a policeman and you have a bad marriage and um, you know your job is to do this and uh, this is how you feel about stuff, and then you wake up and say, huh, yeah, I guess it's back to work today. Even though you you know you just came out of the factory a few minutes ago, they just stepped out and you know gave you this life. Um, it'll control you in a way that uh, just having, you know, urges, uh, you know, bodily urges to eat and poop and and uh, have sex are not going to control you. The, the narrative of your life, you know, says, would this fit with my character? Um, that that doesn't. I wouldn't act in that way. And there's something. You know, it's about looking at it from the outside, telling the story from the outside. And yet, I mean, that what's so funny about this story is because, you know, nobody's listening to that, that <laughs> computer except for us. And maybe yeah. it's itself. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet, you know, when it's tripping over itself at the end, right, someday, someday, mm. sounds like a broken record, right? Is it a broken record or is it is it just wishing? 
is it could be a, a cycle of a of wishing, wishing, or mm. or is it you know? Or, and it says a valve must have stuck in the bard's aging and corroding vitals. Right. Um, which gives you a mechanical explanation for it, but the fact it, it, it stops on some day you know, is that, to use a pertinent phrase, it's pregnant with possibilities to end it's just there. <laughs> and, you know, when I was a kid, um, we didn't have, you know, computers that could tell stories, but uh, one thing we did have was... Uh, Apple II computers and, and there was programs that in there, you know, I was not a great programmer at any stretch, but the, the programs were relatively simple. And there was one, um, that I had quite good fun in the same way that Niccolo and, uh, and Paul do in this story. Uh, it was a, a program called Freud, which I, I believe was a knockoff of another, <laughs> uh, sort of psychoanalyze, psychoanalyzing, program where you it you would see like this face on the screen and it would say how are you feeling today <laughs> and you'd type in your answer and it would give uh it would pick up on one of the keywords and then it would uh throw that back at you so you say well it's I'm, I'm i'm pretty i'm feeling pretty good today and it would pick on the word good right and it says in what way are you feeling good today right and you say, well, you know, I, I had a good breakfast. And it says, what, what is it about breakfast that makes you <laughs> feel good? Right? And so you, you'd get into a sort of a psychoanalytical dialogue with this, with this program. And it was fun. Um, and of course the, the most fun part was, would be like to swear at the, at the, the program. You say, you, um, it would say, uh, Tell me about your mother, and you would say, "Fuck you, you stupid computer!" <laughs> um, and it would respond, um, uh, "What makes uh, what makes you think that uh, fucking will, <laughs> or whatever?" It just picks up the keywords. It's not, you know, intelligent, but it's it's doing sort of a very crappy simulation of intelligence. And one of the fun things you could do is you could go into the code and change the questions, right? So it wouldn't it would ask different things. Mm. And it it almost felt like if you could, you know, change enough of them that you could simulate in the same way that, you know, Alan Turing's test would, you would be able to simulate uh, artificial intelligence. And and when when is that, you know, when we do have, you know, computers like Deep Blue that can beat uh, the best chess players and we have, what was the one that beat the Jeopardy champion? I can't remember what it's called, but um, when they've got computers that can answer, you know, human questions, what what's the factor that's missing that, you know, Siri can do a lot of stuff. But one thing that Siri doesn't do is have a narrative. It doesn't have an overall story. When we're playing that Freud game, we're the one putting the putting the pieces together into a story. Well, you basically say it's the difference between something actual and a, a perception of the actual. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of these, you know, the, the the Turing test. I mean, really, it's just you know simulate. It's a test of how well it can simulate, give the illusion that you're talking to something that's conscious, rather than creating a machine that's going to be conscious. Well, that, I mean, well, have, I mean, how 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 different that actually is in in practical terms is perhaps any an a point philosophers can argue that you know if a simulation is good enough does it matter it's not actually self-aware we 
if it can pass as self-aware. But <laughs> well, we have to we have to assume that about everyone else. That's that's well, why that's it's it, yeah. stuff, right? <laughs> it's like he seems to have his own story. I mean, he he's going and doing stuff, and he's not he's not off when I'm not in the room, right? <laughs> Unless we fall into solipsism. But the thing is, is at some point we're going to have this problem. Presumably, somebody's going to make a computer that acts. Uh, human enough most of the time that we're going to be able to say most of the time it seems to be pretty human. Mm. Um, but it, I, I think that it's also interesting that it, it's a fairy tale machine rather than, I mean, one of the, one of the things you mentioned earlier, you know, was the, how it is sort of in the, the pulps, there was a lot of, uh, recycling of stories. Um, you know, so soap opera or space opera is horse opera, right? In space, it's just, you know, we got to get back to the ranch and shoot those those space cowboys. I mean, space uh, pirates, right? Um, there's a lot of that recycling, but in in reading through, if as I did, I read through a lot of the Grimm's fairy tales. Um, I I see that the patterns are there's a pattern that is somehow connecting all the stories, but often they're completely opposite messages. So one story, you've got princess uh, doing something wrong and she's rewarded. Another story, she does one tiny little thing wrong and she's completely punished. <laughs> and the difference between those two stories is uh, to me, I don't understand like how they can be in the same book, right? There's no, it's almost like it needs censorship. So as to, give it a uh, sort of a a narrative flow. When you read a bunch of these back to back, you end up thinking, well, geez, what the hell is all this for? I mean, they're, they're completely contradictory. They're not teaching the same lesson. They're teaching, like in one story, literally, um, she makes a lie, you know, does a little lie. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then somehow, right, right before the end, um, it's okay. She's, she's somehow, you know, the person who's going to get her dies <laughs> and she, she's just completely rewarded for lying all the way through the story. Well, see with Grimm's Radio, the thing is, I mean, they all come from, um, different sources, you know, they, they weren't from uh, the people. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not like kind of, uh, Hans Christianesen who, who sat down and made all this stuff up They They literally I, just collected and recorded. And, you know, there's a lot of other folklorists around the same time in different countries um, doing the same thing because it was suddenly people were realizing that um, oral traditions were in danger of being lost. And there was, you know, there was, a, there was a great, you know, uh, right all across Europe and in, in America of people go, right, you know, tell me this story, sing me that song, I'm writing it down because otherwise it'll get, you know, it'll get forgotten. And it, it's a lot is to do with um, industrialization. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, which I think, I think this is something Asimov is aware of, and this is why we have an old speaking bard who only does fairy stories and talks mm-hmm. of a visual bard who can do crime and mystery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, doing kind of these modern genres. Yeah. That, um, and it's, it's that sort of cultural shift that the, you know there was an oral tradition of those folk customs and folk tales and all kinds of folk songs that were sang in rural communities where you know. You know, kind of life was hard, but in many ways a lot simpler. You know, you grew up, you were the baker's son. He taught you his skills. You carried on being a baker for the village. Uh, you inherited the bakery. You know, you learned 
the local songs, the local customs, it all just kept ticking over and ticking over until we get industrialization. And then suddenly people are moving away from the villages and little towns, things becoming interconnected. They're going into the cities and people are uprooted. And, you know, this is big fear from you know, the 1800 onward that uh, comes with that, the old ways are disappearing. Um, mm-hmm. We think, you know, in the modern received wisdom, the Victorians invented Christmas. It's not mm-hmm. actually true. Um, cultural historians are finding when they look back that from actually, you know, the late 1700s, people are going, oh, Christmas is dying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not, you know, it's something that they consciously continued and documented. Um, and, and, you know, this is kind of the, you know, the nature of, you know, we forget, if you forget our stories, we, we lose who we are. And, you That's know, right. the, the Grimm's collecting these tales was, you know, very much part of that, you know, preserving the national heritage, the national, you know, the, you know, the national narrative. Uh, in all its sort of different ways. And the reasons, you know, you have these overlaps of different tropes and also a massive inconsistency <laughs> in the stories is they're from different regions and different things, and some stories are more developed than others. Um, you know, I think, you know, what strikes me reading uh, Grimm's fairy tales is, is kind of you, you have lots of these sort of key elements that make a story. You know, a prince or a poor boy makes good or a you know, a princess or an orphan or a magical item or a king or a castle. Um, and, you know, it is kind of like the, what the bard does. These ideas are sort of, you know, juggled around and people spin tales. And in some cases, the tales are quite undeveloped. And then in other cases, the tales are, sort of, you know, they've been told a lot longer. They've got more rounded. And, you know, there's kind of there's a meta knowledge has crept in that gives them, you know, a moral and a purpose or or a message or, you know, rather than some of the, the quite random nature of, oh, and then, then he fell down and broke his leg. Yeah. It serves him right. Kind of, kind of this <laughs> brutality right. you get in Grimm. And it's also interesting, a lot of the going through Grimm's fairy tales is that, we, you know, you find a lot of the original ones we know of, you know, as famous fairy stories now, you see how much of the sharp edges have been sanded away and softened mm-hmm. by later mm-hmm. retellings. Um, I mean, there's... Um, this one, um, the boy we did not know who fear was, which uh, I've read in several um, different sort of retellings of folk tales. Uh, Jim Henson's storyteller did a, a marvelous adaptation of it. Uh, but if you look at the original Grimm, you know it's all about a boy. You know he can't doesn't know what fear is, and he goes up and search fear. And in the later versions, he finds fear is the idea of losing the you know the affection of the lady he wants to impress. Whereas uh, in the original version, the lady isn't there at the start. She's a princess. He wins, and she, you know, teaches him what fear is by dumping a, a bucket of um, uh, of cold live fish over him while he's asleep. <laughs> you know, it's, kind of, it's actually in the original. It's completely pointless. This isn't, you know, the nice rounded narrative that you know makes sense to us as a story. Um, one of the one of the things that I was thinking, I mean, what, there's two. There, there's one strange phenomena also is that because Grimm's fairy tales are, you know, collected now, people don't have to tell the stories; they can just go read them. They become ossified. Mm-hmm. They become this is there. There is this version, and that's the one that people can. They don't even have to remember, you know, the threefold magic that goes into the. You know, remembering how to tell the story. It's now it's codified and it's written down. We can just go 
pick up the book and and because of the prolifer- proliferation of of the Grimm's Tales and other you know similar collecting of folk folk books, it, it almost sort of accelerates the process of you know forgetting the 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 memory because instead of having those stories being told to you by your grandmother. Your grandmother goes and picks up the book and reads the stories to you, right? Well, so, I think it's very interesting that Asimov chooses to name the machines the Bard. Mm. <clears throat> because Bards, you know, did literally, you know, territory, they wandered the land, go from place to place and told stories. And, you know, they had to learn this huge amount of law to be qualified as a Bard. But, you know, we do know from books of old ballads and... Um, uh, various like broadsheets and chapbooks from like the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries that you find that, you know, the people going around telling these stories were altering them and uh, tweaking them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get, you know, several, you know, variations over time where you can see how, how, how they evolve, of how kind of they've been retold and some guy thinks, yeah, that's, that's all very well, the one I learned, but it'd be better if I tell it like this. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, for this machine that sort of, you know, it just loaded up with all these tropes and, you know, shakes them up and it knows the sort of the algorithm of a story of that this has to happen, this has to happen, and the good guys have to win at the end. Um, that is very much kind of, you know, like a lot, how a lot of folk tales were spread around and why you get, you know, stories as far apart from, you know, like you know, the wastes of Siberia and in rural Ireland that are essentially the same story. Just with minor details changed. Yeah, I uh, one one of the uh, where you said you know that essentially the good guy's gonna win. I I think my, in my reading of Grimm's uh, Grimm's fairy tales, a lot of times if there is a good guy, it's hard to detect who that character <laughs> is. Um, and then a lot of the other times, it's like the the message is like I was thinking like how how can we reconcile the these two stories, even if they come from the same, you know, part of Germany, I was the only way I can think is like, sometimes grandma comes into the kid's room after the girls had a hard day, you know, some boy yelled at her or something. And she tells one kind of story. And then another time the girl's getting too full of herself. Um, you know, she, she's mouthing off to her parents and grandma comes in and tells a different kind of story. They're, they're mutually contradictory. Those two stories, but in the in that particular circumstance for each of those those evenings, it's the appropriate story. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also you're getting stories that come out of different areas. Uh, for, you know, one story is you know meant to impart a, a moral message. You know, moral message. Yeah, some you of know, them are explicitly religious stories. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them are completely you know a religious. Some are almost immoral. <laughs> you could argue. Yeah. Oh, clearly. <laughs> um, well, you know, you get other stories that are clearly warning stories of, you know, the the more elaborate versions of, well, if you go, you know, screwing around in the forest, don't be surprised if an eagle pulls out your eyes and it'll serve you right. <laughs> uh, you know, these kind of, you stay away from there, that kind of traditional story. But, you know, you, I also just say in Grimm, you've got stories that are, you know, kind of, they're just narratives formed around old superstitions. Um you know, and kind of, kind of, you know, um, odd things that people claimed happened that have been passed on and passed on. So it's, it's become a story rather than a bit of history. One of the one of the stories uh, I was thinking about is actually the second story in in this big 
collected Brothers Grimm uh, collection. It's called The Companionship of the Cat and the Mouse, or uh, The Cat and the Mouse in Partnership. Basically, it's a cat and a mouse uh, who are essentially married, <laughs> which is pretty <laughs> funny. Um, and they make an agreement that they should set aside some fat for the winter um, in a jar. And they agree that this fat should be stored in a safe place. So they uh, get this jar of fat and they put it in uh, the church underneath the altar. And um, as they're approaching winter, the cat keeps making excuses to go and uh, visit his cousin who's having babies. Um, <laughs> every time he goes off, he... He, he goes off and actually doesn't visit his cousin. He's visiting his um uh, his jar of fat and he's licking it. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> he's licking some and every time he goes off, he gives a different story about the name of the of the fat. Oh not the fat, the name of the um of the kittens. He says, Oh, your cousin's had some uh some um Babies, what what are the names of of the the babies? What did she name? It's a christening, he says. Um, and they say, oh, he was he was he had white feet and black ears and a big white stripe down his back. And we called him. What did the family call him? Skin off <laughs> is the name <laughs> of, the, of the cat. And then the cat goes away and comes back another time. Uh, oh, and my other cousin's getting uh, having a baby, and where it's getting christened, and the mouse says, "What's the name of the of the baby?" And the cat says, "Oh, half gone, half gone. What a strange name!" <laughs> so then the third time, <laughs> the cat goes away and comes back, and the mouse says, "You know what? What's what's the name of the uh, the baby this time?" Starting to get suspicious. All gone, <laughs> said the cat. <laughs> and then um, the mouse is like just about to, you know, accuse her husband of cheating on her, which I think is what the message of the story is. I think when the 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 mouse or uh, the cat says, "You better be quiet," yelled the cat. One more word, and I'll eat you all up. <laughs> All gone was already on the tip of the mouse's tongue. No sooner did she say that to the cat than he jumped on her and devoured her. You see, that is the way of the world. <laughs> like, okay, so the message of this this story is that um, if you're a woman, don't accuse your husband of cheating on you, even if he is cheating on you, because he'll beat you up or he kill you. And I'm like, what the hell? Um, okay. <laughs> nice story, guys. <laughs> There's also a backhanded moral of it. If you're going to tell lies, make them good ones. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know. it's right. It's like, um, he, the thing is, is he does give elaborate excuses, right? He said, my cousin gave birth to a baby boy, white with brown spots. I've been asked to be godfather. I'll be holding him at the Christmas. Like, it's a long, elaborate <laughs> story explaining why he has to go out to the church, right? Um, notice the mouse isn't invited. <laughs> I've got to make a trip. It's a special, important trip to work. I'll be gone all night. We'll see you in the morning. Um, 
<laughs> so, I mean, what, what, I, it's a fun story. I think I, I've read it with kids and kids enjoy it. But the thing is, is the message in it is, is like disturbing. <laughs> I don't want it to be censored. I just, I want, I want, uh, I want to sort of figure out why, why this story is existed. What's, uh, what purpose does it serve other than to give, uh, <laughs> It's like this the story that the husband tells their the the daughter while the wife's looking on he's like what the hell oh my god <laughs> or, or is it uh is it a story the mother tells the daughter it's entirely men, possible men are heels <laughs> don't call them on their shit because you might get beat but up. yeah yeah be smart about it <laughs> hmm. um you you picked a story uh, to talk about uh, that I'd never heard of, but is in that collection. It goes by the name of the Nose Tree. Yeah, or sometimes called Long Nose. <laughs> Long Nose. So w- w- it's about three, no, one dwarf and three soldiers, right? Yeah, it's um, it, it's fairly archetypal tale of um, it features a lot of those uh, the classic tropes that um, you kind of you get in kind of prop. In sort of folk tales, not so much fairy tales, um, but more in the folk tales. We kind of there's three poor soldiers who um, essentially have got nowhere to go, no wars to fight, and they're all getting on old. And um, as is often the case in uh, folk tales, uh, they meet a, a mysterious stranger. In this case, you know, they camp for the night. One soldier takes the watch. He's built a fire, and he's aware of someone near the fire, and he, invite, he invites them over. And it's warm and friendly. It's a dwarf in a red tunic. And um, as is often the, a common moral in folk tales, you can you'd be kind to people you meet on the road and strange mm-hmm. old men <laughs> in particular. And um, you know, because he's a mag- this is a magical dwarf, and he gives him a cloak, which when he puts the quillock on, he can get ha- he can grant wishes, which is pretty damn useful. Mm-hmm. Um, the next night, you know, they're camping out again. The second soldier takes watch, builds a fire, and becomes aware there's someone. He invites him over again, like his comrade did. They're all good old soldiers, and it's the dwarf again. And this time he's rewarded with um, a purse that's always full of gold. And the th- on the third night, the third soldier takes his turn on watch, and again, he's hospitable when the dwarf appears, and the dwarf gives him a horn, which um, is this t- several different vi- translations. In one translation, it says, when you blow the horn, it'll rally together all the soldiers and cavalry in the area. Mm. Um, although in other translations, it... Um, it makes you know everyone just come to the horn and they can't stop dancing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Two different powers, but both useful. Both useful, yes. And um, anyhow, they, they have a to cut a short story shorter. Um, they, they, you know, they have a lot of fun with this because suddenly they, they're not poor. They can have a castle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they can you know invite all their fret old soldiers, friends yeah, around, and feast and gamble <laughs> and you know have a, have a great time. Uh, but then, then a princess enters the bargain, and uh, she actually steals the magic items. And suddenly, like, oh crap, we're <laughs> we're poor losers again. <laughs> We've oh. lost everything. Um, and they split up, and one wanders into a forest and gets lost. And um, he stops between a tree that has these big red apples and pears on it. Um, he eats an apple, and suddenly his nose starts growing. <laughs> And this is why I love this story as a kid, because so far it's kind of, it's, it's fairly your usual, you know, there's three guys, there's magic gifts, a magical being, a princess. 
um, you know, some dickering over magic items. And this is all, you know, there's, there's lots of variants on this tale. But here it just goes really surreal because <laughs> his yeah. nose grows and it grows like 60 miles long and he's snaking off through the forest. And that's how his two, two lost companions found him. His one trips over his nose and they follow it back to him. <laughs> and once they're all reunited, the dwarf reappears and says, here, have, if you have one of the pears, the excess nose will drop off. <laughs> However, if you have... um. You know, take the apple again, he'll grow again. So they take these apples and pears and make them into a powder and um, pretend to be um, go in disguise and go back to the castle where the princess is and spike her with apple powder so her <laughs> nose grows long. And then they, you know, one of them rocks up pretending to be a doctor and so it's examining, mm, well, you know, I could maybe, I could maybe cure you. I'll have to examine you. It's good. Yes, I think the problem is you've stolen something. You need to give it back. Ah. <laughs> and the princess won't have it at all. She's rotten, rotten to the core. If you pardon the pun. And eventually <laughs> the king says, oh, just, will you give them, <laughs> give back that cloak and that purse and that horn you stole? <laughs> and they give her the, uh, the, the, the pear powder. And uh, her excess news drops off, and they and they ride off into the sunset and uh, get themselves another castle. And uh, as one translation ends, and and there they still are, still feasting, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> that is really random, um, as the kids say. It's a little bit like Pinocchio uh, with the the lying the nose lying. I mean, obviously that's not what's causing it, but. That's what they're telling her that she's done bad, so her nose has grown, right? Well, this is uh, as a kid, I, I did wonder whether there was some a Pinocchio connection, and <clears throat> I mean, Pinocchio is, is a later story, I believe. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's and it's written by one guy. Yeah, um, actually, I was reading, I started reading it. It's hilarious, <laughs> super funny. Um, I'm gonna have to read the whole thing because I, I, I think it's a really, really funny story. I, I only know the knew the Disney version and. Uh, mm. Um, w- one of the things that happens immediately in the story is, you know, it sort of follows the same sort of uh, program as in the Disney uh, version. But when he meets Jiminy Cricket, uh, Jiminy Cricket doesn't ha- doesn't get a name. He's just uh, uh, he, he's just Pinocchio a Cricket, isn't he? Yeah. He he says uh, Pinocchio says, "What's your name?" and and the talking cricket says, "My name is the talking cricket." <laughs> 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 and then. Um, he says, you ought not to do stuff like that. And, and Pinocchio takes a shoe or something, throws it at the, at the cricket and kills him. <laughs> just like in the very same chapter he met him, uh, which is not in the Disney version. But what's interesting is that, uh, the ghost of the cricket is haunting, uh, Pinocchio. Um, in, I, I guess in the movie version, the, the cartoon version, there's a, um, the cricket is sort of giving him advice all the way through the story. It's the same thing, um, except he's a ghost because he's been murdered. <laughs> um, I uh, I wanted to talk about a story um, called uh, The Frog King, also known as The Frog Prince, or, and this is the weird version, uh, it's sometimes called Iron Heinrich. And I was puzzling why it would be called Iron Heinrich, because this character, Iron Heinrich, is, like, only mentioned, like, at the last, very last part of the story. 
And I was like, why would they call it Iron Heinrich? That makes no sense because it's about a frog prince. Uh, it's about a frog a princess who doesn't like having a frog in her house. Um, so basically the plot is uh, the princess is down by the pool or a well playing with her golden ball. She's throwing it up in the air and catching it. She throws it up in the air and catches it. And the third time she throws it up in the air, it falls down a well. And she's really upset. And she says something to herself or to God, something like, uh, oh, I would give anything if I could just have my golden ball back. And uh, a frog in the in the nearby pool says, hey, I can help you with that. <laughs> um, and she says, oh, that's great. And he says, but you have to you have to promise. Uh, keep your promise. You know, it, you have to let me live in your house, uh, eat from your your table and sleep in your bed. And she says, yeah, yeah, sure, fine, fine. Not that she plans on keeping her word, but it's a frog and frogs <laughs> might be able to get and she'll deal with that problem later. So the frog goes and retrieves the golden ball from the bottom of the well. And uh, the princess happily goes off, uh, leaving the frog behind with her ball. She returns home to her castle um, when uh, she does so shortly thereafter. She's having dinner with her father and the rest of the court and uh, there's a knock on the door and the frog is there and she pretends like the frog's not there and goes back to the table. There's another knock on the door, uh, same story. And eventually the, the, the king says, what's going on? And so the princess has to uh, deny the, the, the frog, the promise that uh, she made, well, she wants to deny it, but the, the father says, you have to keep your promises. This is a very important daughter. And the daughter is, you know, she's kind of a bitch. So it's it's <laughs> like a, uh, the father's being stern with her. You know, you shouldn't make promises you shouldn't uh, be able to keep. So the, the father makes the girl take the frog to the table. He eats from her plate. Um, she uh, has to keep him warm by the fire. And then uh, in the evening, he gets to sleep in her bed. And she is not cool with this at all. So she's... She's ranting and raving. Um, well, turns out, I think she throws something at the frog, like maybe a jar or a vase or something. And uh, my, maybe he... She, I don't think this is the one where she kisses him. But he suddenly turns into a prince. <laughs> Long story short, he says, you know, you've suddenly... Uh, you've uh, turned into a prince. I was uh, turned into a frog by an evil witch. You've broken the spell. Um, this is great. And the princess is like, oh my God, he's handsome. <laughs> Suddenly, completely turns on a dime. She is, she calls him a disgusting frog, but when he turns into a prince, she's like, um, he, he's a prince with beautiful, friendly eyes. And now, uh, according to her father's will, her dear companion and husband, he told her how he had been enchanted by a wicked witch and that she alone could have rescued him from the well and that tomorrow they would go together to his kingdom. Uh, then they fell asleep. So they're sleeping together. Uh, and then the next day, uh, it's, I'm going to just read the ending because it's, it's crazy. <laughs> the next morning, just as the sun was waking them up, a carriage pulled up, drawn by eight horses. They had white ostrich feathers on their heads and were outfitted with chains of gold. At the rear, the, the young king's servant, faithful Heinrich, 
uh, and then the next line is faithful Heinrich had been so saddened by his master's transformation into a frog that he had had to place three iron bands around <laughs> his heart to keep it from bursting in grief and sorrow. The carriage was to take the king back to his kingdom. Faithful Heinrich lifted them both inside and took his place at the rear. He was filled with joy over the redemption. After they had gone a short distance, the prince's heart had a, sorry, the prince heard a crack from behind as though something had broken. He turned around and said, Heinrich, the carriage is breaking apart. And then Heinrich get, breaks into song. No, my lord, the carriage is not, but one of the bands surrounding my heart that suffered such great pain when you were sitting in the well, when you were a frog. Once again, and then once again, the <laughs> prince heard the cracking and thought that the carriage was breaking apart, but it was the bands springing from faithful Heinrich's heart because his master was now redeemed and happy. And that's the end of the story. It's like, what the hell? What's <laughs> the story about? And I was thinking about it. I was like, well, why, why, does this, why does this happen? I mean, I understand all the stuff about the frog and the princess and how the capricious princess is, you know, suddenly tr- has a has a transformation. My father was right all along when he turns into a handsome prince. Um, but then I was thinking, well, why, why did he get cursed by a witch in the first place? Uh, and what was this Heinrich? He's more upset than anyone else in the kingdom. Strange cybernetic enhancements. <laughs> uh, and then I, I, I started thinking, is this like a story about, because the prince is not actually, he doesn't actually want, the princess, because she's beautiful. He wants her because of some technical requirement to get out of his witch <laughs> uh, curse. And I was thinking, it, uh, is this a story about being gay? Because the prince, the prince, <laughs> uh, he, he, he isn't actually interested in her, but he, he has his duties to fulfill, right? He's got to marry a princess and bring her back to the castle. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, it's not, it's not like it's saying, you know, Iron Heinrich was totally gay for the prince. Um, but it, it, what's this redemption about? And it, it seems so random. Well, it runs, it runs so, it's so familiar, the story, but it also it runs so counterintuitively to everything you feel should be happening in a fairy tale. Yeah. Uh, that the, you know, either, um, the princess should be punished or, or learn her lesson. I mean, um, and the breaking of the spell doesn't sort of make any sort of conventional sense. I mean, no. normally, you know, in the more familiar versions of this sort of tale, she kisses the frog and he turns mm-hmm. into a prince, or mm-hmm. she turns into, and some, I've heard some variants where um, she turns into a frog, and they live right. as frogs together. <laughs> um, yeah. However, you don't break the spell by... Bitterly, getting bitterly angry, I quote, and throwing the frog with all her might at the wall, saying, now right. you shall have your peace, disgusting little frog. <laughs> I'm not sure we're gonna, what kind of crazy spell this is. That it takes that to, maybe when he dies, that's, um, he trans, you know, the spell is broken. Possibly. It's, it's so unclear. Well, one of the things the frog says, it's very clear, like, it's like he's not interested in her for her body. Or for her jewels, or for her beauty. So he says, she says to him, "Whatever you want, dear frog, 
Uh, she said, my clothes, my pearls, my precious stones, and even my golden crown that I'm wearing. The frog answers, I do not want your clothes, your pearls <laughs> and precious stones, nor your golden crown. But if you will love me and accept, accept me as a companion and playmate, and let me sit next to you at table and eat from your golden plate and drink from your cup and sleep in your bed, if you promise this to me, then I'll drive down and, right? It's almost like, look, I'm totally gay. But, <laughs> but I have a responsibility to my family to produce an heir, um, and I need you to show up in the court. We will do official functions. You'll be my beard, etc. <laughs> and she's like, ew, gross. I don't like gay guys. Um, I want a real man or something. And then uh, suddenly, oh, he's so handsome. <laughs> Um, and her father insisted. And so it, it put those two things together. Um, and it's like, uh, it, it, it almost feels like, you know, if you're going to say instead of ha- they lived happily ever after, it's like, and they had yeah, a, they, and they sort of put up with you with each other for, for <laughs> ever after. As long as they should, they both shall live. Um, right, what about the Iron Heinrich? I mean, I mean, aside from sounding like an 1880 sort of, um, superhero, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is one of those things is kind of, you know, these are collected tales and you wonder whether, um, you know, someone got a bit confused and the Iron Heinrich is actually, you know, it's a bit from another story that, you know, it, you should, or, or it was badly told, he should have been mentioned earlier. Or, you know. <laughs> this is the first story in the book, too. Well, I think it's um, a later one called Faithful Johan. Right. Uh, about, right. about a faithful servant and... um I don't think he has iron bands around his heart, though, and I do wonder whether this is kind of like a cut-and-shut job, where there's, you know, someone's misremembering two bits of yeah. tales, and they've forgotten to mention some key bits here and there. And <laughs> but it's, it's certainly very odd. I mean, it's kind of, you can see why later people would take this story. It would get polished, and you get, you know, the Frog Princess, the Frog Prince story from it. Because in his present state, it's, just, it's a real head-scratcher. I mean, it is. I kind mean, of I kind of like the kind of... That's what I do like about the the grim tales. You, you, they are just kind of very raw, raw kind of kind of like. There you go. What do you make of that? <laughs> no idea. That's <laughs> how do you get iron bands around his heart? Why is he so happy? What's get well? And what, yeah, and you know, it's like now he's got his prince back. He's is she. He he's so he's happier than he is. He's happier than the <laughs> princess, right? He's he's so. Why does he need iron band? Like how? to keep his heart from bursting. It sounds like uh, the thing though is, is it, I, I like your interpretation. I think that that's likely what happened is just somebody started telling a story. It just like with the, with the long nose stories, like um, it's just, you know, there's a dwarf and then, Oh shit. What happens next? Okay. On the, <laughs> on the tree. Right. And then what happens is these stories somehow, they somehow work for us. But I think that it's, it's like, uh, they're almost like random ink blots. And because we have to do a lot of the work, I mean, most of the characters don't actually have names. The prince doesn't have a name. Princess doesn't have a name. Only Iron Heinrich gets a name, right? Um, because of that, you know, in Hansel and Gretel, the father's name is Woodcutter, right? Mm. <laughs> there's no, uh, there's no, only Hansel and Gretel get names, right? We, we have to do a lot of the work ourselves. The stories are incredibly short. Um, it uh, makes me think about if you had a bard like that is in the uh, story someday by Isaac Asimov, 
if it could make these random sort of roll the dice things, some of them would work. Some of those stories totally would work, and probably in the same way as a story like this works, even though it's completely bonkers. Uh, if you think that there's some some somebody thought this was a good idea to put it together, it's it's almost like a piece of driftwood. You say, hmm, that's really interesting. It looks like a dragon, <laughs> right? <laughs> Every once in a while, there's going to be a gem in there. And it's well, going to have some meaning. Well, this is it. I mean, the Brothers Grimm, they didn't write down these stories um, for, you know, entertainment purposes. It was for academic, mm-hmm. to preserve them. And, you know, if that's how it was told, that's how it went down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, I think there must be a certain amount of... Um, there is an authorial voice in the way they're written down. So they're not being, not being transcribed verbatim, but they have been sort of, um, you know, shaped... In the in documenting them, but evidently they've not actually edited the contents because there's such great such a great divergence um, in them. But the same way, there's this great similarity, which is you know what you know what really makes makes them interesting. Um, You know, as a whole body of work, is that you know you have different stories that are for different purposes, different things, and you know some really are just kind of obscure to you figure out and you know some just are really surreal i mean there's one about a sausage who lives with a mouse you know <laughs> <laughs> you know and it's kind of you know you know so that's good. clearly i don't think that relates to anything kind of like you know folkloric or moral i think that's you know a funny story someone made up in a tavern after t- you know it's been passed around because it's mm-hmm. you know it's it's the same sort of you know comedic sort of weird sort of funny bones that say Monty Python does and you know you know it's probably I don't know possibly a Germanic equivalent of the parrot sketch who's being retold the story about a sausage yeah that's pretty crazy um there's there's uh, I haven't read you know a quarter of the stories in there but every time I read one it's like this is this is a golden gem of um it's it's like Complete dream logic, most of them. There's a one called the Maiden with no without hands, and she just has to wander the landscape uh, with no hands. Um, at, w- w- you know, everyone else can sew and weave, and uh, and she can't, and yet she has to go make her word, way <laughs> in the world. Um, there's w- another one that's insane. Um, it's called Fitcher's Bird, which is a, like a story of. Uh, Revenge, I guess. That one is, um, it, there's a family with three daughters and, uh, a serial killer comes to the door, <laughs> um, and somehow convinces, uh, the daughter to come out, uh, the oldest daughter to come out, uh, and go home with him. Um, he goes, uh, he, I don't know, he throws her in her, his backpack or something, <laughs> takes her home. And when he gets there, uh, he gives her the tour of the, the mansion. And he says, you know, these are all the keys to the house. Uh, you can go in any room except for this little one. Don't go in there. And uh, the father, uh, the husband um, then says, now I'm going out for a while. When I come back, uh, oh, and hold this egg, by the way. <laughs> hold this egg uh, wherever you go all the time. And I'll, I'm going out for a while. So he goes out uh so the princess immediately goes down to the, or princess, the daughter goes down to the smallest, 
uh, room with the smallest key, opens the door, and inside he finds, she finds a tub full of chopped up human bodies. Um, <laughs> she immediately drops her egg that she's supposed <laughs> to hang on to, and, uh, you know, is very upset, and it gets stained with blood. So she picks it up, goes out, uh, locks the door, waits for her new husband to return. He uh, sees that the when he returns, he sees that the egg has been stained by the blood. And so he takes her in the little room and chops her up. This <laughs> <laughs> repeats. He, he goes back to the same house, gets the second eldest daughter, um, takes, uh, takes her home to the house, does the exact same thing. Uh, the daughter again, uh, investigates the little room that she's not supposed to go into holding the egg. She sees her own sister chopped up in the bowl. <laughs> um, she freaks out, drops the egg, goes outside, locks the door. Husband returns. Uh, he sees that the egg is stained and, uh, he chops her up in the little room. Goes back to the house for the third daughter, the youngest daughter, who's the clever daughter. She goes back to the house uh, with him in the backpack. He gives her the tour, shows her the key ring of keys, says you can go in any room except for this little one. And uh, she is given the egg. Uh, he says, I'm going out for a while. Um, you, you have the run of the house. Just remember, don't go in that little room. So and also never, uh, never drop that egg. Um so she, he leaves. She immediately goes down to the little room, puts the egg down, um, or puts the egg down. I think as soon as he leaves the room, goes goes to the little room with the key, investigates, finds her sisters chopped up in the bowl. Um, she puts her ba- puts the sisters back together again, and then says, "Now hide in the upper attic." Um, <laughs> uh, picks the egg back up, locks the door, uh, and. Uh, when the husband comes home, he looks at the egg. The egg is still pristine. Right? Uh, and he says, now we shall live together happily ever after. And the daughter, the youngest daughter says, well, that's fine, except um, you need to invite my parents over um, because we have to have a proper wedding. So uh, he says, fine. Um, and she, she also says, and you have to carry a lot of gold uh, to my parents <laughs> as a payment for me. And he says, fine. So as she's loading up his backpack full of gold, he also loads her two sisters. Uh, she loads her own two sisters, who are alive, by the way, even though they were chopped up a minute ago, into the backpack. And um, uh, on his way to uh, the daughter's home, uh, the girl takes one of the skulls, I guess she found in the... Uh, in the room of chopped up bodies, yeah, the charnel house, um, puts uh, flowers in its eyes and uh, jewels in its teeth and places it in an upper window of the house. And as the uh, serial killer is walking to the home, he turns back to look at the house and sees the uh, skull, which is quite beautiful because it has flowers in the eyes and jewels in its teeth. Uh, and here's the daughter's voice, uh, which is actually one of the daughters in the backpack, <laughs> saying, don't uh, stop. Go straight to the mom's house, straight to my mom's house. So he goes there, um, invites the family over for dinner, deposits the gold and the daughters. Um, and on his way back, 
he uh, meets the third daughter, uh, the youngest daughter, who has, in the meantime, uh, gone into another room, removed all her clothes, poured honey all over herself, cut up a bed, and rolled around in the <laughs> in the feathers. Um, as you do. <laughs> as, as normal. And, and encountering her husband, or her husband-to-be on the way back, um, she does a little dance saying, I'm a Fitcher's bird, um, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then the end of the story is he returns to the home. Uh, the family shows up. The other daughters have told the story of what's happened, I guess. And they lock all the doors, wait for, oh, wait, they wait for all the guests that he's invited, the serial killers invited for the party, lock all the doors to the house and then burn it to the ground. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. <laughs> Not sure what's going on in this story, other than it's awesome. Well, it's very close to the um, uh, the story that Perot has of uh, famously Bluebeard. Mm, yeah, I've heard that. That's, um, oh, it's considerably wild, wilder. Um, the kind of the the, the tricking of um, the. The serial killer or the villain is uh, very similar to kind of the outwitting of various kind of giants and demons and other folk tales. And just to get really weird, the uh, res- restoration of uh, the Bunchen sisters in a tub is um, very similar to a legend about uh, St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Hmm. Santa Claus, who um, came across a, a butcher's and looked through the window and found saw sort a of tub with uh, three murdered men in who'd been <laughs> and uh he uh re- restored them to life magically. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's not mentioned that this youngest daughter has any magical power. She's just clever. <laughs> but she's incredibly clever because she can restore her sisters to life even though they've been chopped into bits. Well, I think you know this this is it has elements of you know some very, very old legends because it's kinda of like the legend of Osiris. Uh, mm. Who was dismembered by Set, and uh, I believe it's from Bryce Isis, who gets all his body parts back and puts them together, and once he's made whole, he's back to life again. <laughs> and it, it seems to be that kind of. This, I think this is, you know, like a, a very symbolic story, or a was a symbolic story somewhere down the line of his death and the in resurrection. And uh, I mean, I suspect you know, the old the old sorcerer is uh, probably Winter. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and a loose guess. I mean, but yeah, you know, he's kind of a he's wild speculation, to be honest. But you know, there seems to be something sort of very primal, and um, the, the the motif of you know daughters being married off to these mysterious figures who take them away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is kind of you know it's uh, uh, you know, the Persephone story of variants thereon. So I mean, well, you know, what's is, interesting. Yeah. It, it, what's interesting is that it, it, looking at it symbolically, the the egg. I mean, it, that's it's a it gets stained, right? I, I picture it as a white egg in my mm. my head. Um, the white the white egg becomes stained. Um, and then the husband sees that. Um, it's not only a symbol of disobedience, right? Uh, you disobeyed me by going in that room, uh, but also it's like you're cheating on me when I'm not home. Um, you, you know, you let someone else, uh, get your eggs fertilized, not me. Um, 
And so he has to kill them. He complete, becomes a completely reasonable person after he sees that she will follow the instructions he gives her. And he gives her the power of that over the household. Mm. Um, and then, you know, but the thing is, you know, if you, if you trick your husband successfully, that's fine too. <laughs> the message of the story. Um, but I, I just love that at the end, you know, there's, it's, you know, the other family thinks it completely reasonable to torch, not just this guy, but all his friends. <laughs> it's like, well, that put an end to that, <laughs> that party. I guess anybody's friends with serial killers, so they get what they deserve. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very symbolic. Uh, I just love I love how random it is, and yet it it seems to have an internal logic somehow. Well, there is a, there's like a symbolic logic. I mean, they have the thing with the egg, but then you have she disguises herself as a bird. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> which makes no sense either. Why not just take a different path? It makes symbolic sense that there's the egg. It's his way of detecting deception, and her deception is to take it a step further and become a bird. That's right. And uh, uh, I said there's there's lots of just layers of all kinds of symbolism, and it's one of those things. Is I'm very grateful to the Grimms that we have it, but I'd love to know um, if there are earlier versions of you know where where do they come from, and you know because once using put a date to things, you can start cross-referencing and kind of, well, mm-hmm. you know, what was superstitions about eggs at the time? Were they seen as a, a symbol of purity? Or, uh, what was it, you know, because there's all kind of this, you know, in a pretty literate society, medieval society and, and like onward, there were everything was symbolic and this is why, you oh, know, you know, proper churches, churches of the right vintage, you can actually read like books of stone because it's all you know, they were built in mind for an illiterate population who couldn't read Latin, who couldn't read mm-hmm. the native language, but they understood the stories and they understood, okay, right, an egg, that's a symbol of rebirth, or an egg mm-hmm. is a symbol of trust because it's easily broken. You know, mm-hmm. and it's kind of, you know, a few, a few little dates and you can cross-reference, you can you know, really start unlocking a lot of these, these sort of symbols you find in things. I mean, this oh, is like this is really rich. I mean, on one hand, it's kind of, It'd be easy to say, oh, this is just kind of a wacky German variant on Bluebeard, but clearly mm. I think this is an older story than Bluebeard because it has all these odd touches and odd details that give it this sort of these resonances, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for a long time I thought a bunch of Philip K. Dick stories were weird. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, when I think it was just this year, I just thought, these are really weird stories. They don't seem to make any sense. Um, and that's a lot of his, his, he couldn't sell a lot of early fantasy stories. They're quote unquote fantasy stories. But what I'm realizing is that they're actually not fantasy stories. They're fairy tales with, uh, you know, being published in science fiction and fantasy magazines. Um, uh, but they're clearly super fairy tales. There's one, um, that's a basically it's like a it's a uh, Hansel and Gretel but with no Gretel. It's about a little boy who who loves cookies. <laughs> he goes to this old lady's house down uh in his neighborhood. Um and the old lady is a witch of some kind. Um she loves to hear him read and while he's reading he you know he's eating cookies. He, she doesn't care what he reads just as long as he sits there. 
And while he's reading, she puts her hand on his hand, um, and he becomes uh, older or more tired, and she becomes younger. And whether she knows that she's doing this, you know, to explicitly or not is not clear. Um, but every time he goes and visits her, he gets cookies. The other kids make fun of him. Um, and one day, you know, he just doesn't come home. The parents are like, whoa, that's really weird. And it's implied very, it's all but explicitly stated that, you know, the tumbleweeds that are tumbling around the, or the, paper bag or the rag that's flowing in the in the wind um <laughs> that's him he's just come home but he's you know he disobeyed his parents once too often they wouldn't give him cookies um and uh, she would if he had just uh, that's what so i like about uh, hansel and gretel is it's actually it's about a story about two kids brother and sister who have to team up against their parents Right. The, <laughs> the mom, the mom wants to murder them. The father's kind of indifferent. It's like, well, I, I don't, I don't know about killing the kids, but I, I think, uh, well, whatever you say, wife, right? So <laughs> they have to somehow survive. The first time the brother saves the sister, right? Um, gets them back to the house by dropping the, uh, not breadcrumbs, but little white stones. And then at the end or in the middle of the story, the sister saves the brother. Uh, pushing the witch into the oven and getting her key and unlocking him. Um, and then they return home and, oh, magically the mother has died, which is awesome <laughs> because she was the witch, clearly, right? And the father's like alive and er they live happily ever after with the food that's in their pockets and whatever stones or uh, gems they, they found, uh, completely forgetting, of course, that their father was complicit in their murder. Um, well, this is uh, the Philip K. Dick version is the same story, except there's no sister to save the brother. And I, I, I just I love how you can Im I can imagine, you know, Hansel and Gretel is a story you tell to kids uh, when, you know, the brother's been hitting the sister or the sister's been hitting the brother. You say, no, you got to love your brother because uh, he you depend on him. Hey, let me tell you a story about Hansel and Gretel. That turns mommy and daddy into the bad guys. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, it's awesome. And then there's another story by, uh, Philip Kadek. We've, we've done a show on it called, uh, of withered apples, which is about a very young wife. She's very immature who go, wants to go out and play with a old apple tree that is calling to her. <laughs> She eats an apple from it. It's on very stony ground in a rocky orchard um, and dies. And when the father and the, not the father, the, the husband and his father go to the graveyard like uh, three months later or something, there's an apple tree growing out of her, her, um, her grave. Mm -hmm. And he's like, huh. So... Okay, this is a totally a fairy tale because it, I mean, it doesn't follow, it's, you know, it's not fantasy in any normal sense. And it's not, um, you know, there's no science fiction to it at all. It's, it's following the same, you know, just sometimes, uh, living trees that throw apples at you, you shouldn't eat those apples. <laughs> trees that talk, that, you know, tell you mess, secret messages that your husband can't hear. Don't eat those apples. That's the, that's the lesson. <laughs> 
I don't know what to make of it other than it's awesome. <laughs> I do so it's on the modern equivalent of Grim Tales of that kind it of totally uh, is. that kind of random um I don't know, folk tales for the twentieth century. <laughs> but, but the difference though is right I get this I get the feeling that folk tales, like unlike the very deliberate uh writing and where it all is logically getting to the ending, right? The folk tales they seem to be almost like randomly generated like a bard you know it does seem complete like the rules although completely arbitrary um you know don't necessarily need to be followed halfway through the story whereas with the philip k dick story um you see that the narr the author has come up with some scheme and he's polished it so it's one vision but with the folk tales it, it like you say it, it seems like a hybrid between uh, this other story, and then the guy's forgotten the middle of the story, so he stick in, sticks in some <laughs> other character uh, randomly. Uh, we don't... They have a different effect. Yeah, there's something to be so just pleasingly kind of, you know, um, a roar about them, and I think for, um, for a modern-day audience, we're that used to um, <clears throat> the beats of storytelling. Um to the point that it can actually, uh, you know, modern culture can get a bit infuriating because, you know, now there are so many conventions and we're all so aware of them that, you know, right. it's kind of, I mean, you know, now you can sort of time a story to the minute. You know, if you're yeah. watching a TV show, it's kind of, okay, right there for the end of the first act, the first 20 minutes, this will have happened and then we'll have a lot of conflict in the middle and the last 20 minutes with people running around and with things blowing up as it gets resolved. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you can sort of set set your watch by the stories, whereas the joy of kind of a lot of folk tales is, although they are so familiar and they're they're full of tropes, you 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 know, you don't even know where you recognise them for them because they're, they're that steeped in everything we grew up with in childhood. But at the same time, they just go off in these crazy directions and just break the rules of storytelling and, you know, mm-hmm. throw the three-act structure out. They introduce things halfway through and don't explain it. And it's, it's like, they're very subversive forms of storytelling, of uh, right. sort of, you know, wild narratives, you know. As you said, they are like Rorschach blots. I love them. kind of go, <laughs> What's the point of that story? I don't know, but you know, and we're so condi- we're so conditioned though with the sort of you know from moral morally trite TV movie of the week garbage to you know literary novels that are banging on about to make some very important point because they're serious that you know stories that don't have a clear message. They don't go, and this is a symbol of this, you know, nudge, wink, <laughs> at the end, are actually quite frightening, almost. Kind of, I don't know where I am with this, Jesus. They're very different. But, you know, they're so powerful, because they, you know, they, they do speak to the wilder parts of ourselves. Well, well why not, you know? <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.